0: This is a 3CR podcast.
1: And this is Published or Not. Do you notice the public art around the streets and parks? It can be there for visual pleasure or as a memorial. The title of Jane Harper's new book is The Survivors, but it's also the name of the sculpture. Welcome, Jane. Hi, thank you for having me. So, The Survivor Sculpture, where is it and what are they portraying?
2: I think in my books, I always like to bring out elements that I think will, will feel real despite being fictionalized. And I think in this book, The Survivors, it's set in a small coastal town in Tasmania. And I feel like the inspiration for the statue came from, you know, those kind of coastal towns where they have landmarks that I guess mean different things to different people. So for some people, they're just a, an interesting tourism attraction. For other people, they're something that is really part of the town and kind of part of their identity of being in that community. It can be a
1: celebration of the people who made it or a memorial to the ones who didn't because this sculpture is over a shipwreck. But that was a long time ago. You make a very interesting comment in the book about surviving. Some celebrate, others feel guilt. And our main character in the book is Kieran Elliott. He's a survivor of
2: what? Yeah, so Kieran was a really interesting character to write. I I enjoyed writing about him a lot in this book because the survivors are told through his eyes. So Kieran Elliott is a 30-year-old guy who grew up in a small coastal town in Tasmania and when he was younger made a, you know, a series of reckless decisions that um, resulted in tragedy for him and his family and really the community in a lot of ways. Moved away, he has a partner, he now has a young child And and he comes back to um, his hometown for various reasons. And I think the most interesting thing about his character for me that sort of drew me to him was this idea of people revisiting their past with some extra years under their belt and just that maturity that that can bring and how it forces you really to reevaluate things that you you thought you knew were true and you thought were completely acceptable or normal in the past and really gives you that fresh perspective on them.
1: One thing that hasn't changed is... With this
2: sculpture of the survivors, they're in the water. But if you look back on the shore, what would you see? The landscape that I was really inspired by in Tasmania, which is this kind of rugged coastline. So you have a small town, but you also have this really sort of sweeping seascape with rocky cliffs and caves.
1: Well that's what you see on the cover. You see those caves. They look dark and gloomy and it's those caves that Kieran and his mates used to go to explore. But he often warned if you're still in here at high tide mate you're not coming out. 12 years have passed. Olivia has had to come back because her mother's not doing well after losing a daughter and Kieran has also come back to help with his aged parents. So tell us
2: a bit about Kieran's family. What I really wanted to bring out, I guess, with Kieran and his responsibilities around his family was how that's changed over the years. So when he was a young guy, he was, you know, he was the baby of the family and he had parents who were very supportive and, and loved him. And now his parents are aging and they have um, health issues of their own. And he um now also has a, a partner and a young daughter of his own. So he's he's really coming back home in a very different place than that which he was when he left, which is a lot more responsibility from both sides, both you know, generational sides of his family and I think that kind of puts him in a different perspective in terms of the role he, he plays. And I guess that hopefully that's an immaturity that he has returned with and, and allowed him to make, make some sort of reevaluations about his friendships and his, his, the role he played in certain events.
1: Because he did have an older brother, Finn, who was the perfect older brother. And he feels that. Well, Kieran's best mates growing up at Evelyn Bay were Sean and Ash. So one does landscaping
2: and one works on a a dive business. You described the scuba diving.
1: I was absolutely enthralled that you actually knew that there were different kicks that scuba divers have to use in different water conditions. So you did some research on this.
2: I I did, I not only did research, I I went myself, (laughs) which is something um, I thought was really important to do because I have, uh, as you said, the scene involves, you know, diving. And I think something like that is really important to capture that accurately. So I'm not a diver myself, but I arranged to go as part of my research trip to Tasmania and I went diving in a place called Eagle Hawk Neck. And it was amazing. Like it was really, it was really fascinating because a chance to kind of really experience what it's like diving in that Tasmanian cold water kind of setting, all the equipment you need, the safety talks they give you, the kind of things you see, it's what it feels like really. I think is, it, you know, for people who are who are non-divers, that, that experience of being under the water is, you know, is very surreal and it's not something mm. that you can really um, relate to anything else, I think. So it was, it was fascinating. I learned a lot. I always try and do that kind of on-the-ground research and, and, and experience those things you know, where, I, where I possibly can because I think it just really helps build that those scenes with, you know, the authenticity that you're looking for.
1: Kieran's other mate, Ash, has gone into landscaping. Now, he's worked on his grandmother's garden for years but what's happened to it now?
2: We all know landscaping is a, is a years-long operation, really, and he has a particular garden that used to belong to his grandmother's that he has worked on. For years and years and is now in a process of being torn up by the new owner so i think it's that kind of long-term connection that you really have when you stay in a place that kieran maybe doesn't have anymore and is sort of thrown into
0: um
2: you know so sort of highlights it when he comes back and he reconnects with his old friends
1: well ash couldn't even afford to buy the property so it's so it's been bought by an author who's gone there as to retreat to write And I love the description of 40-year-old George had an actual print newspaper tucked under his arm, made the perfectly innocent object look like a nostalgic affectation. (laughs) Look, I love the way that, uh, you know, you you say that Kieran went to a writer's lecture in, in Sydney and he saw this author on a panel with two women authors and spoke for easily half the time. You've given Kieran some subtleties that are just delightful. And I, I think he had to go away from Evelyn Bay to pick this up. He was aware of what's safe for men and women. Kieran didn't think twice about taking shortcuts through unlit parks and felt no need to quicken his pace when he heard footsteps on the pavement behind him at night. And he's also told by Olivia that some guys don't understand anything but a loud, firm no. Some don't even understand that. So you can sort of see that Kieran is a guy who's picked up on these nuances through growing up. Somebody else in the town, Constable Chris Wren, fresh-faced and over-eager to please in his first posting at Evelyn Bay, so what was Chris Wren's first case?
2: Chris is a Chris Wren is a long-term cop at um, Evelyn Bay. And as you said, when he first moved to the town, he was young and he was under the supervision of the more experienced officer. Now, um, fast forward more than a decade, and he is now the man in charge. So he is really, you know, knows his town inside and out. Um, and I think one of the things about Chris Wren was that he he's the kind of cop that works in a small town and is very diligent and very eager to keep this town running as it should. But occasionally, it's forced to maybe deal with things that are a little bit beyond his normal duties, just by nature of being a small town cop. Occasionally, things happen that are not everyday occurrences in a town like that. So, Early on, he was forced to deal with a terrible storm that really, you know, caused a lot of damage, um, both physical and emotional for the people in the town. And then 12 years later, when Kieran returns, Kieran's barely brushed the sand off his, off his bag when a, a body is found on the local beach. And that sends real shockwaves to the town because it's not something that, you know, you would expect to happen in a place like that. All of these shock
1: through the town, all of this land. There's also a community hub that shares the local gossip. How does this work out?
2: So I think one of the things I always try and do in the books is touch on you know, elements that are, are recognisable really wherever you live and if you've ever been to a community at all like that. So in Evelyn Bay, they use a, a, an online community hub to pass information to each other, which is basically a, a bit of an antiquated online forum, which is normally used for complaining about rubbish collections and, you know, tourist damage. But when um, this, this terrible um, event happens, uh, on the beach, it becomes really a forum for gossip and fear-mongering and really you know, unfounded rumours that start to circulate. So it stops being, I guess, a community hub and starts being a, you know, a source of unregulated pain, really, for a lot of locals.
1: And Kieran's father's, Brian's name, is brought up in this community hub because he was the last one to have spoken with Gabby 12 years ago and was out wandering on the night of another death. So if people don't go online to chat, they usually come down to the pub. And the surf and the turf is is quite a meeting place. Julian's the owner, but it's Liam, his stepson, who's only 19. And Liam is talking to the young Bronte, the waitress. And Kieran overhears what Liam says to Bronte. It was the This big storm, the worst in like 80 years or something, but everyone who was there then remembers it and they all know what he did. If you kill someone, you deserve all the shit that's coming your way. We know that Kieran's had dark days of blame and reckoning, but we started talking about survivors and I really liked this advice from a psychologist on page 42. I'm going to ask Jane
2: Harper to read. Okay, so this part is, as you said, this part is um, Kieran, our main character, is in hospital and he's receiving some advice from a doctor. All right, listen close, she said. Kieran had been admitted less than 24 hours earlier and was still feeling shell-shocked because this is important. Kieran, lungs still heavy and aching, had tried to concentrate. All this, she'd waved her pen at his body This will all heal, you're gonna be fine. So what I need you to do is focus on your head because that sends people back here more often than you want to know. The doctor had let that sink in before she spoke again. People can react badly when they don't know how to react to something. That's true for everyone, but men in particular can very quickly find themselves in places they don't wanna be. I'm talking aggression, I'm talking family problems, heavy drinking. She had ticked them off on her fingers Drugs, sex stuff, prostitutes, violent porn, and you, Kieran, he had stared at her. Me, what? A guy like you? What are you, 18? In a situation like this, you are a prime candidate for that, my friend. Prime. The doctor's tone softened. This could be you, easily, so I want you to make sure it isn't. Do not let yourself get sideswiped by this, all right? There's going to be a lot to deal with emotionally, so be prepared. You need some sort of release that's not going to end up with you dead or miserable or in jail. So take me seriously when I say this. Find something positive that helps. The same day he was released from hospital, Kieran had followed Verity into their house, dropped his bag and walked down the hallway and straight out of the back door. He'd stripped down to his shorts, plunged into the sea and swum and swum and swum.
1: Well, that was 12 years ago. Now, as you say, he has a wife and he's got a young baby. Where did that come from?
2: As part of my research, I, took, I spoke to a clinical lead advisor from Beyond Blue about, you know, the long-term implications of, of going through a traumatic event, as particularly, I think, on young men, what sort of symptoms they would show, what kind of treatment they're offered, how successful various things are, and, and that was really useful. And I think that was something I really wanted to bring out in that passage that I just read. The fact that I think at that point Kieran realised himself he has a choice and he can either go down a spiral or he can try and claw his way out of it. You know, that's a really important part of his character and something that has has allowed him to survive where others have struggled.
1: The opening pages of The Survivors has a man and a woman on a shoreline, him thinking, if you're going to do it, do it now. Or is it 12 years ago? Is he going to kiss her? or kill her. Jane Harper is an award-winning writer of crime. So <laughs> there's twists and turns a plenty in this book. There's blame, there's guilt, there's everything. And you've won the Davitt Award a number of times. And it's that Davitt Award's coming up again. Congratulations.
2: Oh, thank you. Yeah, well, I've won the Reader's Choice Davitt Award three times, which has been really exciting. And such an honour because I think the the readers who vote for the David Awards are people who read a lot of uh, books. They really know what they're looking for. And I think to have, you know, an endorsement from readers, the best kind of praise a novelist can have, really. You're writing for the readers and, you know, so they're the ones you're really hoping to please.
1: The David Award's coming up on Saturday the 26th of September and Val McDermott, the Scottish crime writer, will be speaking with uh, Sisters in Crime ambassador Sue Turnbull. You can find this and check it out on the Sisters in Crime website. You can watch the ceremony on the YouTube channel. But no-one had come through the storm unscathed. Twelve years later and with another death, blame and guilt rise again to the surface in The Survivor by Jane Harper, a great crime read. Thank you very much, Jane. Thank you so much. And now it's David's turn.
0: A road trip is often a metaphor for life's journey and such is the case in Sam Coley's debut novel, State Highway One, where he explores the physical, emotional and psychological travails of his protagonist, Alex Preston. So Sam, welcome to 3CR. Thanks very much. Happy to be here. Now, I think we can tease out some of these threads a little. Foremost, it's a physical journey. Where is Alex and where
3: is he heading? So when the book starts, he's almost at the very top of New Zealand on his way to Cape Reinga, driving very fast and erratically. He's home for the first time in three years, having fled the country to take a job in Dubai. And when his parents die in a car accident, he comes back to New Zealand to bury them and kind of sort that stuff out. So that's happened the day before. The book opens with him driving up to Cape Reinga and him and his twin sister, Amy, decide impulsively to uh, do a road trip of the whole of New Zealand. So they start at the top and, well, maybe they make it all to the way bottom. (laughs) You'll just have to read it, I suppose.
0: And the bottom is South Cape, which is rather isolated as it turns out in terms of a physical journey there's a physical time limit to this as well
3: yes well he has a flight booked um to go back in two weeks time so luckily new zealand isn't actually that big Uh, so they they decide that they can spend a week driving to the bottom and a week driving back up again and you know things don't necessarily go to plan
0: well speaking of not going to plan and the physical He virtually crashes, he's on a precipice. I've never been this scared. My heart is beating a tattoo against my rib cage. My eyes are clamped shut. I feel stones and bits of grit digging their way under my fingernails. And still I dig harder into the earth. My right hand grasps something, some kind of tree root more solid than mud. I risk it, let go of the ground for a second and grab at the root with the left as well. Hang on with both as hard as I can. For a moment, I'm sure it will give way and I'll go over, but it doesn't and I don't. That physical endangerment really is there in terms of this car journey.
3: It's funny that is a very heightened version of something that happened to me a long time ago on that very same road. Uh, When I was doing a road trip and got horribly lost in the middle of a rainstorm, and I actually did punch through a retaining wall and almost topple over the edge of a cliff into the Whanganui River. So when I started writing State Highway 1, I thought that a a much more precarious version of, of that particular accident should make its way into the book.
0: So he could virtually lose his life but there's also a reference in there to hold on, and that sort of notion permeates its way through the text.
3: yeah, I think he kind of has this idea that um he certainly says about his sister, you know just hold on I'm you know I'm coming to I'm coming to see you um, I think he feels that. It's kind of that thing when you, I don't know, when you live abroad and you feel like everything is just paused at home, like um, I've lived in a bunch of places and every time I go back to New Zealand, I'm surprised that things aren't exactly the way they were when I left. And so I think that just hold on mentality is kind of this idea that if he can just get there and do something, then he can kind of try and fix essentially the, the mess that he left things in when he left.
0: Well, the mess that he's left things in, in some ways, refers to the emotional, uh, because this is a fraught journey. He's returned to New Zealand, as you said earlier, because his parents have died in a car crash. So there's almost a physical connection with his near death experience. The rain didn't kill my parents is what you say there. He's got a lot of emotional baggage to work through the nature of his relationship with his parents. What's that been like? Uh,
3: He has quite a complex relationship with his parents. So it's not only grief that he's feeling, but also, I don't know, like a strange guilt, I suppose, but also like an animosity towards them Um, him and his sister were basically left to raise themselves their parents were famous kind of producer director film industry people and would leave them alone for months at a time and the two twins responded to that in very different ways alex felt very isolated and neglected and amy felt kind of freed and unbound so there's there's animosity between between the twins certainly and also uh, Alex towards his parents. And that, that kind of complicates the grief that he feels when they suddenly die.
0: But also then, the Alex and Amy were accidents.
3: Yeah, they they were accidents. So the parents had them fairly late in life, but obviously decided to keep them anyway. And, and so they're kind of an afterthought a lot of the time um, and and an inconvenience.
0: Alex's mother has actually made a documentary or a a movie, I think, at one stage, which is almost full of regret for having children.
3: Yeah, so she she writes this film while she's pregnant about her regret at having kids or her wishing that she didn't. And um, there's a part in the book where uh, Alex recalls standing outside his mother's office at home and hearing her say to her assistant get rid of it while you still can in reference to um, her being pregnant because she obviously you know doesn't really um, regard her children as as things that that she really wanted I suppose.
0: In another sense this is sort of indicative of a lot of his relation a lot of Alex's relationships because he's the central focus this sense of betrayal that occurs and we see that in a lot of his relationships there's Alex's homosexuality as well, but each Mm. of his interactions seem to be marked by a betrayal. Sajjad in Dubai, who's his boss, and there are children's toys on the floor when they're having their relationship. There, of course, is uh, the fact that his parents virtually deserted both he and Amy. There's Henry, who's his uh, childhood friend when he was discovering more about his homosexuality. There's also someone he meets on the journey, Joel, a a backpacker who betrays Mm -hmm. him. So there seems to be this uh, recurring theme of betrayal, which also includes Amy as we go through the text. Yeah,
3: I didn't really think about it in those terms. I kind of think of him as being continually let down by the people that he trusts. But he is also exceptionally kind of butthurt by all of these things that happen. And he reacts very emotionally to them. And I think that's compounded by his upbringing. And he seems to go quite overboard with his emotions when he feels that someone close to him has has kind of betrayed him or let him down. And I think that kind of attachment and disordered thinking comes from the, the neglect that he experienced while he was growing up.
0: And the most intense relationship in many ways is with Amy, who's, is twin and mm. and they're talking and there's a dialogue taking place between the two of them. Was there a reason why you made them twins, do you think?
3: Yeah, definitely. So when I was thinking about this road trip in the first place, it actually started as a book of photography in my head and I, want, I, I really like taking photos and I was feeling very creatively stifled so I decided to do this road trip and then I started to fictionalise it and I was thinking about who you would take that kind of trip with, you know, who could you stand to be in a car with for that length of time? And, you know, family is such a a complex relationship anyway, because like them or hate them, you can't get away from them in a sense, um, even though you might run away to Dubai. So I decided to make them family because that, you know, that has all the complexities of of that relationship. And, And the reason I decided to make them twins was, so that there would be no older or younger dynamic at play. I really didn't want there to be that kind of like older brother or younger brother relationship going on. So I decided to put them on even footing, at least as far as that was concerned, and that's why I decided to make them twins.
0: The last element here that I've got in my notes is the sort of psychological journey, Mm -hmm. because Alex is actually unravelling in many ways.
3: Yes. Well, you know, the road, as you said, is a metaphor. (laughs) But he certainly becomes more and more erratic. And I think the further he travels south, the closer he gets to really his breaking point. And I, it's very, it was, you know, I've got a map of New Zealand um, above my writing desk in my office. So I just worked my way down the country kind of picking pieces of him off as I went, and and as well as his mind unravelling, you know, he, he slowly sheds the things that he has until he ends it with no shoes and no money and no car and, and kind of nothing um, but his own mental state.
0: Um, there's been the drinking, and as you say, he is virtually divested of anything, money, car, footwear. He's relied mm. on others halfway through there's the sort of repair to the car and there's that image of taking out the radiator and this hole being left in the engine which sort of reminded me of that missing element in in his makeup Mm. but even getting to south cape it's just completely isolated there are no roads there no there's really nothing there
3: um it's very hard to get there as i found when i was in stewart island um desperately trying to find somebody like Alex does who would um, who would take me to the bottom. But yeah, it's very difficult to get there. So I, I rocked up to Oban on my on my research trip and said, oh, I want to go to the bottom. And everybody was like, you can't, you literally cannot go there. There's, there's no way. Which is why that part of the book happens. Because in my head, he just kind of got to Stewart Island and then walked to the bottom and sat on the beach and had his moment. And so I had to drastically change the draft when I was actually there in 2018.
0: In some ways, it's, again, that notion of a metaphor in the sense that you can't always get what you set out to achieve in life. It's almost impossible, some of the objectives we set ourselves.
3: Yeah. He talks a a bit about, you know, I don't know what I'm looking for. I don't know what I think I'll find on on the journey um, but he's obviously looking to repair some of the relationship with his sister and 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 sift through that wreckage and you know what he finds along the way doesn't necessarily fit with what he anticipated um, but I think he kind of gets there in the end.
0: Well as you say he gets there in the end so to speak the reader on the listener will have to find out what he in fact discovers about his relationship with his sister how he resolves his heartache about his parents and the relationships he's been involved in the novel is State Highway One the author is Sam Coley and it's his debut novel and it's a hashtag release so Sam thank you very much for talking with me today thanks very much that's great well Jan that takes us out for another week
1: And look, more books to read for next week, more authors to chat with.
0: Despite the travails of uh, coronavirus and such like, we will do our best to keep bringing you more authors next week.
1: See you then. Well, let's talk then.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.